Hello, and welcome to another podcast brought to you by Airs LA. My name is Nancy Porter, and it is my delight to be able to share with you Time Magazine. I need to remind you that you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today I will be sharing from the January 22nd, 2024 issue of Time Magazine. This is from the View section on food. Title, What the Science Says About GMO Foods by Jamie Ducharme. Thirty years after tomatoes became the first genetically modified produce sold in the United States, lots of people remain skeptical of scientified foods. In a 2020 Pew Research Center survey, just 27% of Americans sell genetically modified foods are safe to eat, while 38% said they're unsafe and 33% weren't sure. That's not only a U.S. phenomenon. In the Philippines, for example, activists have been protesting the production of golden rice, a type of genetically modified rice harvested at, a, at scale for the first time in 2022. Golden rice is engineered to contain beta-carotene, an addition meant to counter vitamin A deficiency and resulting vision loss. But opponents argue that the rice has not been through adequate testing and there are safer and healthier ways for people to consume vitamin A. Golden rice is only the latest example in a long history of anti-genetically modified organisms, GMO, sentiment. Protesters have torn up fields where genetically modified crops are planted and marched in the streets against companies that produce GMOs. Much of the concern seems to stem from fears that gene editing could introduce new toxicity into old foods make foods more allergenic, or lead to disease-causing genetic mutations in humans who eat these altered plants or animals. The doubts persist, even though the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, which all work together to regulate GMOs and make sure they meet food safety standards, say that GMOs are safe. Technophobia is a very common problem, says Trey Malone, an agricultural economist at the University of Arkansas. It's this rosy retrospection that assumes that things used to be better back when. That leads to this belief system that creates pushback against GMO foods. What many people don't realize, Malone says, is that humans have tinkered with their food for a long time. Even thousands of years ago, farmers would save the best seeds from their harvests and use them to optimize future yields, sometimes breeding them with other plants to create even more desirable crops in years to come. Modern corn, bananas, apples, and broccoli otherwise would not even exist. Neither would the grain hybrids behind the Green Revolution, which increased crop yields beginning in the early 20th century. Norman Borlaug, who won a Nobel Peace Prize for the millions of lives the hybrids saved, welcomed GMOs once saying, 
All of the things we were doing with conventional breeding was genetically modifying plants. But these days, genetic modification can happen in a lab, where scientists making targeted tweaks to a plant or animal's DNA to change or create specific traits. This process can be used to alter a food's flavor, nutritional content, appearance, or defenses against pests, and has given rise to foods including fresh Del Monte's pink pineapples and non-browning Arctic apples. But while these flashy products grab headlines, the truth is they make up only a fraction of the GMOs sold in the United States. Fred Gold, a professor of agriculture at North Carolina State University, who chaired a 2016 National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine report on genetically engineered crops, often leads educational sessions on GMOs. He likes to show a photograph of a supermarket produce section and ask how many of the vegetables in the picture are genetically modified. He guesses as high as 90%, but the right answer is zero. A handful of genetically modified fruits and vegetables are on the market, including summer squash, papayas, and the aforementioned pineapples and apples. And within the past decade, the FDA has approved genetically modified salmon that grows faster than regular fish and pork free of a specific allergen. But in the United States, GMOs are much more likely to show up in processed foods like cooking oils, soy products, sweeteners, and snack foods. Almost all of the soybeans, corn, sugar, beets, and canola planted in the U.S. are genetically modified, mainly for resistance against insects, herbicides, or pesticides. These crops are then used to make many of the packaged foods most Americans eat every day. By eating these foods, the average American has for decades been part of a natural experiment, Gold says. Most Americans and Canadians have eaten GMOs for decades, whereas these foods have not been consumed as widely in Europe. If GMOs were linked to health problems, researchers would therefore expect to see differences in the health of North Americans relative to Europeans. But when we look at the data, Gold says, we don't see any signs. Indeed, researchers have found no evidence of GMO-related increases in cancer, obesity, kidney disease, gastrointestinal issues, autism, or food allergies in the United States and Canada versus Europe. Research in animals has also shown no evidence that consuming GMOs causes genetic mutations or fertility problems. We're very careful about saying there are no effects. We haven't found any effects, Gould says. There's always a chance new risks could come to light with time, he says, but he feels that's very unlikely, based on what the science has shown so far. Malone agrees that based on the available research, there is no clear reason to fear genetically modified foods, and plenty of reasons to embrace them. Gene editing can not only make foods more nutritious, 
but also streamline their production processes to improve sustainability, he says. Planting genetically modified crops, research suggests, may increase yields and allow farmers to produce more food on less land, while simultaneously cutting down on chemical pesticide use. Meanwhile, fast-growing genetically modified salmon theoretically requires fewer resources to raise compared with conventional fish. As Malone sees it, innovations like these are the strongest reasons for people to embrace GMOs. Production systems across the planet are realizing that we are going to have to confront climate change. We are going to have to adapt, Malone says. Agriculture can be part of the solution. Moving now to the world of politics. Headline, Haley's Slow Burn. In Trump's GOP, the path forward is narrow and steep. This is by Minnie Racker from Sioux City, Iowa. After 10 long months of campaigning, it was a 30-second video that suggested Nikki Haley was finally getting somewhere. The December television ad, paid for by Donald Trump's allies and aired in New Hampshire, accused the Republican presidential candidate of flip-flopping on the gas tax as South Carolina governor. But you could practically hear the champagne corks popping at Haley's headquarters in Charleston. Someone's getting nervous, she posted on social media. Haley's emergence as perhaps the top threat to another Trump domination is not what many Republicans expected when she launched her underdog campaign last February. But as the first votes in the 2024 GOP presidential primaries neared, she climbed to second place in many national and early state surveys, eclipsing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Her slow burn rise has been fueled by standout debate performances, which convinced many Republicans, including plenty of Wall Street donors, that Haley is the party's best hope to beat both the GOP frontrunner and President Biden. One recent poll of a hypothetical matchup with Biden found her leading by 17 points. Her momentum has opened a spigot of cash and spurred a series of key endorsements from New Hampshire Governor Chris Sumner Sununu to Americans for Prosperity Action, the cock-based grassroots powerhouse that has already spent upwards of $4 million on her behalf. More than any of Trump's other rivals, Haley has managed to make the case for her candidacy without turning off the pool of Republicans in the former president's corner. I believe Donald Trump was the right president at the right time. I agree with a lot of his policies, Haley says at a recent Iowa town hall in a small ballroom at the Sioux City Convention Center, where a staffer has carted in extra chairs to accommodate a crowd that has gathered nearly six weeks ahead of the January 15th Iowa caucuses. The truth is, rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. She pivots. We can't have a country in disarray, in a world on fire, and be dealing with four years of chaos. We won't survive it. 
Haley repeats lines like these in hay-filled barns and quaint eateries across town and New Hampshire. Targeting conservatives exhausted by Trump. A disjointed coalition that spans those who revile the former president and those convinced he can't win. Her ability to draw these contrasts while eschewing direct confrontation have persuaded many non-Trump Republicans that she is their best bet to take him down. Haley's path to the nomination remains steep and narrow. Trump maintains a huge lead in most national polls and early state surveys, lapping the field by as much as 50 points in some cases. Haley's allies argue that will change as rivals drop out and the non-Trump vote consolidates around her. One of her donors, Eric Levine, likens her strategy to the old joke about two hikers who stumble upon a hungry bear. Neither has to outrun the bear as long as one outruns the other. Donald Trump wins when there's a lot of people in the race, says Levine. Donald Trump loses if it's one-on-one. The data doesn't necessarily agree. Some polls suggest Trump would draw a fair share of his rival supporters if they ended their bids. And much of the primary calendar and delegate process this year appears likely to facilitate a Trump nomination. More than one GOP operative suggests to me that Haley's best shot would be if the former president needed to step aside for health reasons. But other improbables, mostly in courtrooms, are recasting the meaning of second place. Trump faces criminal trials that could yield a conviction before November, or, with the Supreme Court involved, scramble the election in unexpected ways. I think he's probably the starting quarterback, says Don O'Connor, a bank worker at a Haley Town Hall in Clear Lake, Iowa, who is leaning toward her. But starting quarterbacks get hurt. Starting quarterbacks get to the point they can't play anymore. And you'd better have a strong backup. The press conference was Trump's idea. It was October 2018, and he and Haley had agreed that she would resign her post at the end of the year. When they announced the news in the Oval Office, he sounded like he was promoting her. Nikki Haley, ambassador to the United Nations, has been very special to me, Trump effused. She's done an incredible job. Haley smiled bashfully as Trump said she'd have her pick of positions if she worked for him again. She preempted inquiries about her future by pledging to campaign for Trump. The moment was the capstone of Haley's successful tenure in an administration not known for successful tenures. Haley grew up in Bamberg, South Carolina, the daughter of Indian immigrants. She learned at a young age that her turbaned father and the rest of her sick family could not avoid standing out and learned almost as quickly to steer conversations back to common ground. After studying accounting and helping run her mother's small retail business, she began eyeing her local statehouse seat where the 30-year incumbent was hinting he might retire. He didn't, but Haley ran anyway and won. Six years later, she defeated some of the state's top political figures to become governor. 
This is how Nikki Haley gets elected, says Ted Pitts, her chief of staff when she was governor. She starts off being kind of seen as a lower tier candidate and works her way up the ranks. Haley's current rivals allege she's vying to be Trump's running mate and paint her as the candidate of the ruling class. A video from the DeSantis camp includes the slogan, Make the Establishment Great Again. Her backers note she rode the Tea Party wave to the governor's mansion and now campaigns on capping federal spending. Nobody's to the right of Nikki Haley on the economy, says Drew Klein, senior advisor to AFP Action. Haley is also known for delicately navigating matters of race and identity. Her response to the racist murders at a church in Charleston in 2015 catapulted her to national prominence. Haley attended the funerals of all nine black churchgoers and led the removal of the Confederate flag from the state capitol, a move at odds with much of her party's base. She was less resolute recently in New Hampshire when she was asked what caused the Civil War and initially failed to mention slavery. In 2016, Haley delivered the GOP response to President Barack Obama's State of the Union address, using the speech to condemn the angriest voices in politics. After Trump beat Hillary Clinton, he met with Haley. He made a dig about her backing Florida Senator Mario Rubio over him in the primaries, Haley recalls in her memoir, but then they talked foreign policy. When his team offered her the UN job, she scoffed to a rump ally, I don't even know what the United Nations does. All I know is everybody hates it. But Haley went on to acquit herself in the role. She has been one of the best ambassadors we have ever had to the United Nations, just for the sole reason that she could very clearly express U.S. positions and often declare outrage. Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley says, Too many people that are at the U.N. tried to be too polite. Many backers cite her foreign policy experience as central to her case for the presidency. Haley's staunch support for Ukraine, perhaps her sharpest policy difference with Trump, is informed by her past dealings with Russia. And her backing of Israel's war against Hamas is an extension of her efforts at the United Nations to champion the U.S. ally. There has never been anyone that's been more supportive to the state of Israel than she was when she was at the United Nations, says Fred Ziedman, a Haley donor who helped with Jewish voter outreach for George W. Bush. Haley at times broke with Trump, condemning Russian election meddling and supporting NATO. But in her memoir, she lavishes praise on him and his agenda. Her pattern of threading the needle on Trump continued for years. After the January 6th attack on the Capitol, she suggested his political career was over, but later said he still had a role to play. She initially said she would not run if 2000, in 2024 if he did. Once she entered the race, Trump mocked her reversal and took to calling her bird brain. But after viewers saw her on the debate stage, her pool numbers began ticking upward, 
and some fundraisers supporting her home state senator, Tim Scott, moved to her after he dropped out. Haley also stepped into the expectant space vacated by DeSantis, who hasn't worn well. When former Representative Will Hurd of Texas ended his own presidential bid in October, he quickly endorsed Haley. The difference between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, he says, is when you meet Nikki Haley, you actually like her. Many of those who watched last year's debates have come to the same conclusion. They like how she stays cool under pressure, cracking only in ways that seem relatable, as when she called entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy scum for mentioning her daughter. They especially like how she handled a question on abortion. I am unapologetically pro-life, she said in the first debate. Having said that, we need to stop demonizing this issue. This is talking about the fact that unelected justices did not need to decide something this personal, because it is personal for every woman and man. Now it's been put in the hands of the people. That's great. When it comes to a federal ban, let's be honest with the American people and say, it will take 60 Senate votes. It will take a majority of the House. So, in order to do that, let's find consensus. That answer comes up often at her Iowa town halls, where everyone is thinking about electability. Her view on abortion is much more palatable than any of the other candidates, says James Koopman, who is canvassing for her in Iowa. I know that's a huge emotional button for Democrats. In fact, it's probably the key issue for them. And if we, being Republicans, haven't learned anything in the last four years, then we have our heads in the sand. Seeing a path to an upset beginning here Haley assiduously sought to keep expectations low. I think you're going to have a play with me and Trump in New Hampshire, and then we're going to go to my home state of South Carolina, and we're going to take it. Obstacles remain. DeSantis still leads her in some polls, and he and his supporters are expected to continue the fight past Iowa. And, critically, many in the party see Trump's nomination as inevitable. But there's a less conventional path to victory that has helped Haley fans nurture hope. Trump could lock up enough delegates to secure the nomination as soon as March. Then he could be convicted in one of the four trials he faces this year. No one knows exactly what would happen after that. Trump would still be eligible for the presidency. He could even run for office from jail. But some Haley backers want her to stay in the race as long as possible, just in case. In the meantime, Haley continues her balancing act. Where some party operatives warn she needs to hint Trump harder, the voters flocking to her disagree. They don't want more division. I applaud most of his decisions when he was president, says Jim Latham, a Haley supporter in Clear Lake. I morally do not care for the man. 
Back in Sioux City, Haley is asked whether her real goal is to beat Trump's vice president. A tight smile spreads across her face. I have never played for second my entire life, she says, and I'm not going to start right now. As the crowd cheers, Haley scans the room for another question, but the voter presses on. That's a no? She shakes her head and slashes the air twice as if to say, no chance. But she doesn't say no. Moving on to a section in the January 22nd, 2024 issue of Time Magazine is a special section on ideas of the year. Headline, Can America Lead? Secretary of State Antony Blinken and the Test of U.S. Power. This is written by Vera Bergen-Gruen. It was 2.15 a.m. on October 16th, and Benjamin Netanyahu couldn't figure out how to work the copy machine. Six floors underground in the Tel Aviv bunker from which Israel's war cabinet was directing its battle against Hamas, Secretary of State Antony Blinken waited to be handed a sheet of paper outlining the results of a nine-hour negotiating session with the Israeli Prime Minister. Even Blinken's sleep-deprived advisors had no idea what the two men had agreed to behind closed doors. Less than 24 hours earlier, Blinken had been in Cairo, preparing to return to Washington after a six-country dash across the Middle East. The visit had started off with a show of U.S. support after the brutal Hamas attack on October 7th, followed by talks with Arab allies. But as Israel intensified its bombing campaign in Gaza, Blinken decided to make a U-turn. Cut off from water, food, medicine, and fuel, the enclave was spiraling into a humanitarian crisis. Arriving back in Israel, Blinken conveyed to Netanyahu the anger he had heard from regional leaders and urged him to allow aid into Gaza. In a tense meeting punctuated by an air raid siren, Netanyahu was intractable. Israel would not tolerate one drop of water, not one ounce of fuel across the border, a senior administration official said. As it grew dark, Biden and his aides followed Netanyahu from the Kiria, Israel's version of the Pentagon, to the underground command center. Huddled around two laptops and a mobile printer in a small room with no cell service, the U.S. team traded proposals with the Israeli cabinet next door. Some came back with Netanyahu's hand-scribbled edits. Finally, the Israeli prime minister and America's top diplomat sat down alone. If Israel was going to proceed in its mission to destroy Hamas, It had to allow aid to reach civilians, Blinken told Netanyahu. He also made clear what was hanging in the balance, a visit from President Joe Biden, the prospect of which had leaked to the Israeli media but had yet to be formalized. A visit from Biden represented a critical gesture of support and significant leverage. At 3 a.m., Blinken went in front of the cameras to announce that Biden would visit the country in two days to reaffirm his ironclad commitment to its security. 
and that Israel had agreed to allow food and medical supplies to reach civilians in Gaza. Five days later, the first 20 trucks rolled in. Ultimately, the logic prevailed, Blinken told Time in an interview in his wood-paneled office at the State Department in late December, his voice hoarse after the latest whirlwind trip. Marathon negotiations like these are now the norm for Blinken. Over the past three months, the Secretary of State has spearheaded the administration's effort to persuade Israeli officials to show restraint, while publicly backing a war that that Gazan officials say has killed more than 22,000 Palestinians. As he lays them out, Blinken's wins seemed dwarfed by the scale of the devastation. More than 100 trucks of humanitarian aid entering Gaza in one day. The release of four American hostages. Four-hour humanitarian pauses. The figures are totally insufficient in terms of what was actually needed, Blinken says. But you have to start somewhere. That is an uncomfortably apt analogy for American power in 2024. Biden promised to restore American leadership on the world stage after the chaos of the Trump years. But his tenure has been as much defined by evidence of its limits. America's disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, the stalemated war in Ukraine, a century-defining challenge from a rising China, a conflict in Gaza that threatens to ignite a regional conflagration as it divides the Democratic Party and deepens Biden's re-election prospects. The question hanging over all is whether the U.S. is still capable of steering an increasingly dangerous world. More than anyone else in America besides Biden, it falls to Blinken to supply the answer. In four trips to the Middle East since October, the Secretary of State, age 61, has held meetings in royal palaces, military headquarters, villas, airport lounges, and bomb shelters. Arab leaders have rebuffed his hug, given him history lectures, and kept him waiting overnight. The Israelis have contradicted him publicly. Even officials close to Blinken admit the U.S. position, calling on Israel to do more to protect Palestinian civilians while continuing to tout their support, is becoming untenable. But in interviews with more than a dozen current and former senior U.S. officials and diplomats, most argue the Secretary's even-keeled approach is a reassuring projection of American leadership at a perilous moment. He's the right guy at the right time, says Tom Nides, who serves as U.S. ambassador to Israel until July. I have sat in those rooms with him and Bibi. Tony's a nice guy. But don't screw with him. For generations, America's counterparts have simultaneously resented its power and sought it out. Even now, with its credibility dented abroad and its democracy under pressure at home, the United States is called by allies to lead on global problems like pandemics, artificial intelligence, and climate change. It is a different world. This is a more multipolar world, says former Secretary of State John Kerry. 
That means more diplomacy, and Tony is perfectly situated to do that. But the world seems intent on testing that proposition, and nowhere more so than in the Middle East. On the morning of October 7th, Blinken was awakened at his home in suburban Virginia at 5 a.m. His chief of staff was on the phone. A vicious surprise attack was unfolding in Israel, with thousands of rockets and Hamas fighters breaching the border. Across 30 years in government, Blinken says, I don't think I've seen anything quite like the nature of the atrocities that were committed. Five days later, Blinken arrived in Tel Aviv carrying a message of staunch support. We will always be there by your side, he promised, standing next to Netanyahu. This must be a moment for moral clarity. The grief and gratitude from the Israelis he met was overwhelming. In meetings with officials, he was shown gruesome photos of victims, one of a baby shot in the head, another of a baby's burned body. A planned two-day trip stretched into seven. Blinken hopscotched the region, making stops in Jordan, Qatar, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Egypt. There could be no more business as usual with Hamas, he told Arab leaders, who agreed to keep open diplomatic channels to prevent escalation. As the U.S. entourage ducked into meetings, security officers wore body armor instead of suits. Air raid sirens sent staffers scurrying into shelters. In the end, Blinken left with a sense the U.S. had accomplished something solid. It's never like flipping a light switch. It's always a process, he says. And there's always a little bit of a lag between being there and seeing the actual realization. By his second trip to the region in early November, the mood had shifted. Israel had followed its air campaign with a ground incursion into Gaza. The images of destruction and the rising civilian casualty count were producing mass protests around the world. The Israelis could tell U.S. officials felt the pressure. The strategy was to give as much as possible to the Americans on humanitarian issues, says former Israeli ambassador to the U.S. Michael Oren. The view was that Biden needs time and space because he's constricted by his own party. If that was the approach, it didn't always show. Netanyahu defied American requests and contradicted its public positions while flaunting what he called the diplomatic iron dome of U.S. support. We went from being there in commiseration with Israel, supporting a friend in a public outpouring of grief, to having these very difficult conversations and having to push and push and push in a really tough negotiation, says a senior Biden administration official. Blinken and his boss were left with choices that ranged between very bad and worse, says Aaron David Miller, a longtime Middle East advisor to both Republicans and Democratic secretaries of state. While Biden has a personal bond with Israel, there is no love lost between him and Netanyahu, who repeatedly undermined the Obama administration. But Biden knows that fueling with an Israeli prime minister never turns out well, says Miller. It can be politically costly and is usually counterproductive. 
Over time, Blinken's public message began to change. He expressed empathy for Palestinian victims and noted the gap between Israel's stated intent of protecting civilians and what was actually happening on the ground. When I see a Palestinian boy or girl pulled from the wreckage of a building, it hits me in the gut, he said at a November 4th press conference. I see my own children in their faces. The same day, sitting in a white swivel chair at the St. Regis Hotel in Amman, Blinken got an earful from his Arab counterparts, according to a senior administration official. They warned that the U.S. was wiping out 30 years of work and giving the impression Israel was above international law. Amen Safadi, the foreign minister of Jordan, one of America's closest regional allies, told him Israel was committing war crimes. If you want to help Israel, by all means help, Safadi said. But you are not helping Israel by not speaking against this mad war. The conflict was becoming a test of America's influence and Blinken's. As the face of the U.S. diplomatic effort, the secretary came to shoulder the blame for what critics see as Israel's excesses. On his visit to the West Bank city of Armala, demonstrators burned images of his face, crossed out with a red X. Ahead of his arrival in, in Ankara, a banner over a highway read, Baby Killer Blinken. For someone used to working behind the scenes, friends say, the criticism has taken a toll. It's really, really tough and brutal. The physical toll, the pressure, the public glare, says James Steinberg, the dean of the Johns Hopkins School of, of Advanced International Studies, who has worked with Blinken for decades. If people don't see that it's changing Israeli behavior, then you bear the brunt of the failure to convey the message. Most nights, Blinken returns home after his two young children's bedtime, so he has made it a priority to have breakfast with them in the morning. On December 8th, they were interrupted by protesters outside his house. Blinken, Blinken, rise and shine, you're committing genocide, they were saying. The secretary comes from a diplomatic pedigree. His father, Donald Blinken, served as ambassador to Hungary, and his stepfather, Samuel Pisar, was a Polish-born diplomat and lawyer who survived four years in Nazi concentration camps as a teenager. After escaping a death march in Bavaria, Pisar was rescued by American soldiers, an event Blinken credits for shaping his worldview. Born in New York City, he largely grew up in Paris, which he says taught him to see America from the outside. He returned to the United States to attend Harvard and dabbled in journalism, filmmaking, and law before joining Bill Clinton's White House, where he worked as a speechwriter and on the National Security Council. In 1995, he met his wife, Evan Ryan, who worked for then First Lady Hillary Clinton and now serves as Biden's White House Cabinet Secretary. Blinken went to work for Biden in 2002 as the Democratic Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He served in various roles in the Obama administration, including Deputy Secretary of State. 
It's difficult to find a photo of Biden at any major moment in foreign policy over the past 20 years without Blinken in the background. Wearing matching aviators in Kosovo, crammed into a helicopter in Baghdad, hovering in the back of the iconic Situation Room photo captured during the mission to kill Osama bin Laden. Tony brings to the job the first and most important thing, says Kerry, which is the confidence of the president. When Blinken took over at state after four years of a Trump presidency that disdained traditional democracy, the department was suffering from low morale, steep budget cuts, and high attrition. The contrast with Blinken's predecessor, Mike Pompeo, who vowed to restore swagger to state and signed emails, kept on crushing it, could not have been starker. Tony doesn't swagger, says Barbara Bodine, a former U.S. ambassador to Yemen and a 30-year veteran of the Foreign Service. He does not lead with his ego. Blinken was a departure in other ways. He does not have the military gravitas of Colin Powell or the political celebrity of Hillary Clinton or John Kerry. In describing his style, three former colleagues invoked former Secretary of State George Shultz's oft-cited analogy comparing diplomacy to gardening. The way to keep weeds from overwhelming you, Schultz liked to say, is to deal with them constantly and in their early stages. But Schultz was at state during the Cold War. Today's world presents a different set of challenges, which has made the unglamorous work of tending global ties, rather than bending nations to Washington's will, both more relevant and more challenging. This is what I was instructed to do by the president from day one, says Blinken. This has been for many, many years, in a sense, our secret sauce, something that really is our competitive advantage. Our network of partners and allies that other countries, notably our adversaries, simply don't have. Blinken is one of several key players on a Biden team featuring longtime colleagues like National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and CIA Director Bill Burns. It was Burns, a veteran diplomat, who was tasked with negotiating the release of the American hostages still held by Hamas. Sullivan has embarked on his own Middle Eastern tour and serves as a primary conduit to Ukraine. Blinken's incoming deputy, Kurt Campbell, meanwhile, shapes China policy. To some, the overlapping mandates produce confusion. But the main critique of the Biden team is that the president's decision to surround himself with supportive staffers results in groupthink. In 2021, the State Department came under heavy criticism for its failure to foresee the rapid collapse of the Afghan government and for not acting quickly enough to move U.S. troops and Afghan allies to safety, leading to deadly violence and a chaotic airlift of more than 120,000 people. A report commissioned by Blinken found a lack of clear communication and decision-making and insufficient senior-level consideration of worst-case scenarios contributed to the bungled exit. Yet the common worldview and low-drama approach of Biden's team has also been an asset. In late 2021, Blinken pulled Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky aside at a climate summit in Glasgow to lay out U.S. intelligence that pointed toward a Russian invasion. 
As Ukraine and other European allies dismissed those warnings, the U.S. team scrambled to prepare for war. When Russia invaded, Blinken successfully rallied allies to Ukraine's defense. He has made four trips to Ukraine and more than a dozen to visit European allies, reinvigorating the NATO appliance and helping to coordinate more than $110 billion in support of Kiev. But as the war in Ukraine nears its second anniversary, the conflict has become more a point of concern about U.S. leadership than a reassuring example of it. That is partly due to the administration's challenges at home. Republicans, once staunch hawks, now argue for cutting foreign spending to confront aggression by Vladimir Putin's Russia. We have to keep reminding people that if we allow Putin to move forward with impunity in Ukraine, we would be opening a Pandora's box, Blinken says. Putin would not stop with just Ukraine. What really worries foreign allies is the return of American isolationism, as personified by Trump. The 2024 election looms over every recent meeting and negotiation. Many abroad wonder whether they can rely on the United States, or if it is about to abdicate global leadership just as conflicts threaten to expand on three continents. Even our best partners and allies are going to hedge their bets, says Tom Shannon, who worked with Blinken in the Obama-era State Department. They're not sure whether this administration is a turn away from Trumpism or just an interregnum. Less than a year from the election, 57% of registered voters disapproved of Biden's handling of the war in Gaza, according to a recent New York Times poll. Inside the State Department, Blinken has fielded multiple internal dissent cables decrying U.S. support for Israel. We have refused to let our policy keep up with the realities on the ground, says Josh Paul, who resigned as a director at the State Department office that handles arms transfers to foreign powers over the administration's handling of the war in Gaza. Not only are we facilitating all these civilian casualties, but we're doing so in support of a policy that is not going to lead to peace and security for Israel, let alone for the Palestinians. Blinken, who has met with the dissenters and tells time he reads every memo, acknowledges the broader problem. Our strength at home goes directly to our standing around the world, he says. He also argues the U.S. is stronger than its critics' credit. I have found that people have seen that we're serious about ourselves, he says, and they want to work with us. Spending more on defense than the next 10 countries combined, the U.S. military remains unmatched. America's economy remains the envy of the world. Yet, as Blinken gears up for his fourth trip to the Middle East since October 7th, the U.S. faces a growing array of global tests. Iran's proxies have stepped up attacks on U.S. troops and vital shipping lanes of the Red Sea. North Korea has tested new intercontinental ballistic missiles. China has grown more confrontational with U.S. allies in the South China Chi. With a pro-U.S. frontrunner in the upcoming election in Taiwan, China's leader Xi Jinping recently told Biden that it intends to take control of the island. The weeds Blinken is trying to control are sprouting into thickets.
fairly or not, America's ability to navigate the war between Israel and Hamas has become a litmus test of its power. Blinken says bringing the war to an end as quickly as possible will be one of the administration's main priorities in 2024. But Israeli officials insist the operations will last months at least. To some, the gap between what the U.S. wants and what it can deliver is diminishing its credibility. I think we look confused, says former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton. You can tell Israel to go slower. You can tell Israel to go fast. But you cannot tell it to do both at the same time. Blinken, the consummate old-school diplomat, appears unperturbed by the criticism. All we can do is be responsible for the moment that we're in, he says, gripping the arm of a chair in his office. We're trying to put in place a foundation that is durable and lasting, irrespective of who happens to be in office. From his window, the Secretary of State has a view of the Lincoln Memorial, a temple erected in tribute to a president who led during a period of rupture in the Republic. As Blinken spoke, a cleaning crew was scrubbing a message splashed in bright red paint over its marble steps. The words were still visible. Free Gaza. And that concludes our sharing of Time Magazine, the January 22nd, 2024 issue. I need to remind you that you have been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, my name is Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share Time Magazine with you.